I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You may have noticed that we've doubled the number of shows we create each month. That means we've also increased costs by almost double. It's all part of LiveWire's plan for world domination. And you can help by visiting LiveWireRadio.org and donating whatever you can spare to the cause. Thanks for your time. Enjoy the show. And we'll meet you in the cave of ultimate power in Greenland in 2013. You know the place. Was the night after Thanksgiving, and all through the kitchen were yesterday's dishes about which mom had been bitching. The leftover turkey, tofurkey, turducken threatened to burst from the fridge they'd been stuck in. The yams were half eaten in where, comma, tupper, since tryptophan comas set in after supper. The dining room table sat forsaken, untidy, because all in the family were out shopping Black Friday. The mall was jam-packed, worse than they remembered, with Christmas decor that's been up since September. Children were crying for their picture with Santa, whose beard smelled of gin, camel lights, and mylanta. <laughs> Good customer service was lacking in retail, a la DMV, down to every detail. I have a complaint, like I give a damn. Can I speak to the manager? I'm the manager, ma'am. There was chaos, jostling, and passive aggression, an orgy of commerce despite the recession. When they'd spent their last dollar at the last dollar store, the family at last could purchase no more. They escaped from the holiday music on Muzak, interrupted by ads and distorted by feedback. Three versions of Rudolph and two Ave Marias, a scratch on the paint job when they got back to the Prius. Over the river and down through the burbs, they raced through the streets over speed bumps and curbs. At home in a flurry of bags and receipts, they stowed all the booty in closets in heaps. They snuggled in bed and prepared to sleep tight till the night after the night following Thanksgiving night. For t'was then that a magical thing would transpire. It's happening now. It's, it's... Turduckens dance in our head, and turduckens are not known for their dancing. It's Livewire, and now it's the host of Livewire who plans to write a poem called Twas the Night Before This, as soon as she can piece together what happened last night. Courtney Habeister! Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks so much for coming out. Tonight is a show full of brave adventures, and I'm not one of them. I don't like camping. I don't. I'm not going to do it. Can't make me, even though I live in the Northwest. Doesn't matter. The other people here love camping. We've got the man known as the Ethical Traveler. Jeff Greenwald is here with an excerpt from his new book. And we're very excited to have the world's foremost authority on the orangutan here. Dr. Barute Mary Galdikas is with us. And, yes. And our musical guest tonight is uh, just your standard improvisational prog jazz slash indie rock band. The Blue Cranes are here tonight. But before we get to all that, please meet the extraordinary members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, our siren of sound, Pat Janowski, and as usual, Scott Poole, the author of The Cheap Seats, is joining us tonight. He will sit in our audience 
And uh, in the course of just a single hour, the amount of time it took Oscar Wilde to sharpen both his pencils and his wit, Scott will write a poem that encompasses all that he has learned over the course of the show. So please welcome Mr. Scott Poole to the show. Get right, Scott. And we can't do any of it without our house fan. Please welcome Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. for you. Thanks, Ralph. So as our poem indicated, uh, the show is airing just a couple nights after Thanksgiving, and if you're lucky, like most Americans, you're around family right now. And if you're even luckier, you're not around family right now. (laughs) Which is to say that family can be kind of a double-edged turkey-carving knife. Um, We used to spend Thanksgiving at my Uncle Bob and Aunt Sandy's house in Minnesota every year. It was my mom and my dad and my brother and my dad's four siblings and all of their families. And all the kids would sleep in the basement floor in sleeping bags like a pile of puppies and we'd just stare at the the pipes in the ceiling just whimpering every time one of them made that ghostly clanging noise, which it did a lot because there were like 25 people in the house. So Thanksgiving is kind of a time to torture your children. Thanksgiving can also be a time of learning. It's where I learned to gamble. We would uh, sit around my Uncle Bob's table, all the uncles and my brother and me. They taught us poker while simultaneously robbing us of every bit of change we brought to the trip. And when my Uncle Bob would run out of change at the table, he would tiptoe upstairs, sneak quietly into my cousin Mitchell's room, and grab his piggy bank. Um, And when it was time to break into it, he would just talk to the pig's face as if it was Mitchell. Mitchell, I know you mowed a lot of lawns for this money, but... Daddy has three queens. You know, I'm good for it, right? I don't know if he ever paid him back, but he did put him through college, so they're probably even at this point. But I think that it was the wives who enjoyed Thanksgiving the most. They would spend the day in the kitchen smoking like chimneys while they made dish after dish with the same ingredients. You'd know these ingredients. Ingredient X can be anything, plus Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, cheese, and fried onions on the top. Didn't matter. It's just, oh, just bring your Legos in. We'll make a casserole because it was all the same stuff. Um, And then at night, what they would do in Minnesota in the winter, they would put on as many layers as Ralphie's little brother in A Christmas Story, and they would go out for a walk. For hours at a time, these women, my mother, my aunts, they would brave the sub-zero Minnesota temperatures and two feet of snow holding their white wine in their shivering, bemittened hands. (laughs) just to be able to talk as much smack as possible about all the people who were still in the house. (laughs) So if you're listening to this, I hope you're somewhere with family talking smack about other family members because that's what Thanksgiving is all about. (laughs) So moving on to the actual show. Tonight's musical guest was called a David Lynch-style basement jazz hallucination by the Portland Weekly Willamette Week. They've performed at jazz, rock, and punk festivals all over the West Coast on seven tours since 2007. They're now planning to tour both the East and West Coast by train in spring of 2011. Here with songs from their third album, Observatories, please welcome Blue Cranes to Livewire.
Welcome to Livewire, you guys. Um, I, I wanted to, to talk to you briefly about your Kickstarter campaign that you guys just had and the fact that you are planning. You've, you've self-funded seven tours uh, across the West Coast, but now you're going to the East Coast as well, and you're, you're planning to do it all by train. Why did you choose to do it by train? It's going to be in the spring of 2011, right? I think mostly because we didn't want to drive through the night. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we were thinking about um, we really wanted to get out to New York and... We were wondering why no one does the train, and maybe we'll find out. But, um, <laughs> but um, we also realized that because of the way things are structured, it was going to be very um, a lot more expensive to do it by train than to pile cram into a van. So we um, found the Kickstarter site and decided to do a fundraising campaign, and it worked. So we raised uh, around $7,000 to make this tour happen. So thank yeah. you to everybody who <laughs> participated in that. Well, I think that it's, it's an interesting kind of a cool thing that seems to be happening where people are just starting to uh, be patrons again of the arts and they're starting to just really support things that they believe in. When you're making a record like that um, or, or going on tour and it's actually funded by your fans, does it change at all the way that you think about it or do you feel, are you going to be reporting back to all the people who funded the campaign? Uh, yeah, we are. There's, uh, we're going to do some sort of a blog that goes directly to all the people that were funding the campaign and um, hopefully some videos and different things. You made a great video know. for your Kickstarter campaign. People have to, if you do a Kickstarter campaign, uh, you have to make a video and their video is fantastic. It's funny and charming and I highly recommend you go to Kickstarter and take a look at it. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So good luck on your tour and you're going to come back later in the show and, and play one more song for us. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Blue Cranes, you guys. Okay, so Kendra, what seems to be the problem with Gizmo? Well, Dr. Abrams, she's been vomiting a lot. Okay, has she had a change in diet recently? Not really. Dry food, right? Oh, yep, yeah, uh, dry. But some wet, too, bunch of stuff, um, plus some pizza rolls. Oh, huh. Uh, you know, pizza rolls aren't very good for a cat. Yeah, they're not really good for anybody. Well, okay, well, I don't sense any abdominal swelling here. Oh, also, she's been real gassy at work. I'm sorry, what? I, I mean, when I'm at work, when she's at home, because she doesn't go to work. I mean, that'd be crazy. What? Okay. Oh, plus, she's got some stomach cramps. Um, stomach cramps hurt like a bastard. What makes you say that? Oh, you know, I, I can just tell. Right. Okay. I think I know what's going on here. What? Kendra, I think you're the one with stomach problems. That's crazy. Gizmo checks out okay. Why don't you tell me why you're really here? Oh, all right. Look, Dr. Abrams, I don't have health insurance, and going to see a human doctor would cost me an arm and a leg. I was hoping that maybe... I don't know. You were hoping I would diagnose Gizmo, and you would relate it to your own symptoms? Yeah. Kendra, I can't help you. Plus, any medicine I might give you for your cat would probably make you more sick. I'm sorry, doctor. I feel like an idiot. Just go home, make some peppermint tea, and stay hydrated. It should clear up in a day or so. Thanks, doc. Let's go, Gizmo. Damn pizza rolls. Uh, next! Uh, hi, Dr. Abrams. How are you? Afternoon, Ryan. I see you brought in your pet turtle there. Uh, yeah. Memphis Shell hasn't been doing so hot lately. Hmm, okay, well, what seems to be the problem? Okay, um, his right arm is really hurting him, and he's in a lot of pain. Okay, any idea how your turtle hurt his arm? Uh, well, a couple nights ago, he went out for his birthday, and, uh, <laughs> he got pretty trashed with all of his buddies. Right, uh-huh. And, uh, well, anyway, um, he fell off the hood of a car he was standing on, and... I think he broke his arm. Oh, really? Yeah, that, that's, that's what happened. Uh-huh. Get the hell out of my office. What? Take your stupid turtle and get the hell out of here. D doctor, he needs medical assistance. The only thing your turtle needs is an owner with a shred of integrity. Okay, I'm going, I'm going. Come on, Memphis Shell. Darren! Yes, doctor? How many more patients are out there? Well, Kyle Watkins is here with his impotent parrot. Um... <laughs> Marcy Herman thinks her ferret needs a different birth control. Um, and Father O'Shea is here with his depressed and possibly gay dog. Okay. 
You know what? I am sick and tired of these insurance scammers. You know what? I'm going to lunch early. Tell them to wait. Doctor, are you all right? I'm fine. I'm just a little stressed out, that's all. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I know what might make you feel better. What's that? Somebody posted a video on YouTube of a turtle surfing on the top of a minivan. He totally wipes out, too. It's hysterical. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we stimulate every part of your brain, including the area that used to house the Iliad but now holds all the names of the cast members on Jersey Licious. <laughs> Coming up, Dr. Birute Galdikas, author Jeff Greenwald, and more from Blue Cranes. We'll be right back. <laughs> show is an author, a monologist, and a photographer all rolled up into one guy. He has circled the globe and written a book about it, The Size of the World, in 1993. And in 2003, he co-founded the organization Ethical Traveler and still serves as its executive director. You can see his work in the New York Times Magazine, Wired, National Geographic Adventure, Salon.com, Outside, and more. Reading from his sixth book, Snake Lake, please welcome Jeff Greenwald to Livewire. Okay, so Snake Lake is my book. The book is set in 1990, during three months, the spring. At that time of 1990, I was living in Kathmandu, working as a journalist. It seemed that revolution was in the air. There was an amazing thing going on in Nepal. India had closed all the borders leading up to this landlocked country, and the country was being smothered. Nothing could get in. Fuel, medicine, silver, cotton to make clothes, absolutely nothing could get in. And for the first time, after 240 years of living under this divine monarchy who was thought to be the incarnation of the god Vishnu, for the first time in two and a half centuries, the Nepali people were talking about revolution. And I was living there as a journalist thinking, if there's a revolution, if they actually overthrow the king, I can be here to report on it. And so I was living there 20 years ago, full of excitement, full of that kind of juice that you get when you're in a place that's just about to explode into action and shape history. And it was a time of life where that, that was happening. Romania had just had a revolution. The Berlin Wall had just came down. Revolution and democracy were in the air all over the world. The other theme is something that I had been paying attention to since I started visiting Nepal, and that was Buddhism. Now, Nepal was known as the world's only Hindu kingdom, but Buddhism, coming down from Tibet and the Himalayas, was a huge force in the country, too. And though I'd been visiting the place for 10 years, I'd never really taken Buddhism seriously. But through a friend, through a doctor friend living in Kathmandu, I was introduced to a young, wonderfully charismatic lama named Choki Nima Rinpoche, who was only one year older than me, and with a combination of amazing wisdom and humor, introduced me to the Buddhist teachings in a way that I never thought would be possible. I actually started to get them. And then there was a dark cloud that was kind of hovering on the horizon, Though I was living in Kathmandu and my whole world and my universe was bound up in that strange, exotic, wonderfully friendly, brilliant, artistic country, 
I was getting letters from the United States from my younger brother, Jordan. Now, Jordan is three years younger than me, extraordinary person, but he'd been going through an intense period of depression for about seven years. And as these letters started to come in from the United States, one after the other, I realized that my brother was spiraling into a depression that could only lead one place and just seemed really dire. And I was caught between these two magnetic poles. Should I stay in Nepal and wait for this revolution that could transform South Asia and shape my career? Or should I head home and try to be of some kind of service to my younger brother who desperately needed help? I did end up going home that even though I did, I was uh, too late. And my brother took his life in March of 1990. And it wasn't until months later, I think actually it was a couple of years later, that I realized that those three things I was dealing with in Nepal, revolution, Buddhism, and suicide, were all three different paths to liberation and that I would somehow try to shape them into a book about liberation. And that's what I, what I did with, with Snake Lake. Now, why the title? Well, long ago, before the dawn of human history, the Kathmandu Valley was an inland sea populated by a race of Nagas, sacred snake gods who lived in these vast underwater palaces. And these Nagas, they, they had all these wonderful powers and qualities, and the people of Nepal loved these Nagas. When the valley was finally drained to make it ready for human habitation, all these snake gods and goddesses, these Nagas and Naginis, fled to the wells and the little lakes that were left in the fertile Kathmandu Valley, and they became known as Nagpokhari, snake lakes. And I became fascinated with this idea of snakes as a metaphor for things that bubble up from the unconscious, things that bubble up from, from populations like revolution, things that bubble up from the best part deep inside us like Buddhism, and things that bubble up from those really troubled depths of our soul like suicide. And the little part I'd like to read you from this book is about the different ways that we look at snakes in the Eastern and Western worlds. The gulf between Eastern and Western snake symbolism is profound. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, snakes are evil and cunning, promoting the slimy emotions that tempt and wreck our souls. In Nepal, snakes are so well-loved that they have their own festival. Nag Panchami falls during the summer monsoon, whose sustaining rains are controlled by the Nagas. When one examines the Western prejudice, it's clear how superficial and misdirected it is. Our loathing of snakes seems to date back to a single morning in Eden when a magnanimous episode of serpentine generosity was falsely cast as a duplicitous dare. Ignorance, that archetypal Naga cautioned Eve, may be bliss, but it is also ignorance. God knows this, I know this, and your big brain knows that too. But don't take my word for it. Have a bite of this apple. And Eve, whose defiant courage would be twisted into a betrayal of everything high and holy, helped herself. Was the snake wrong? The snake was right. Yet despite that mythical serpent's sacrifice, something in us that yearns for dependency and for the innocence of the cradle remains bitter. A snake got us chucked from our little garden, and we've been bashing them with shovels ever since. The sages of antiquity knew the truth about snakes. In Kabbalah, the mystical tradition of Jewish wisdom, each Hebrew letter is assigned a number. Every word, thus, has a numerical value. According to the system, which is called gematria, the numerical value of the Hebrew word for serpent, 358, is identical to the word for Messiah. It's a shocking affinity but it makes sense. Both snakes and messiahs, after all, are masters at the art of liberation. A snake literally sheds its skin, emerging as a rejuvenated being. A messiah offers the same opportunity. In metaphor, a chance to invent ourselves anew. When a Nepali mentions a naga, he or she isn't referring to a garden snake. The classic naga, a snake god, is the hooded cobra, the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the serpent world. Nagas pop up everywhere in Hindu and Buddhist lore, savvy brokers between the spiritual and elemental worlds. Lord Vishnu, the great preserver of the Hindu trinity, dozes on the infinite coils of Ananta, a serpent-cum couch, for eight months of the year. Nagas are the wardens of the monsoon rains and safeguard the earth's trove of diamonds, jewels, and underground treasures. 
And it was Muchalindanaga, a seven-hooded cobra who sheltered the Buddha from the sun and rain during his seven weeks of meditation on the banks of the Enoma River. But nowhere is the Asian respect for serpents more evident than in Tantra. In these secret teachings, snakes symbolize the deepest source of spiritual power. The kundalini lies coiled at our lowest psychic center, the root chakra located at the base of our spine. Through specific meditations like measured breathing, sexual yoga, and the recitation of mantras, we invite that snake to dance. It climbs the spine, electrifying the six internal chakras. It reaches the Ajna chakra right between the eyes, then rises higher still, penetrating the cranium. There it illuminates the highest chakra, the lotus of a thousand petals, which hovers like a gnat above our skulls. When your kundalini hits that point, you know you've arrived. You embrace, with a single glance, all the manifestations of existence. Once again, you've taken a bite of that big, juicy apple. And again, you have a snake to thank for it. Jeff Greenwald. That was Jeff Greenwald. You can find more of his work at salon.com. And you're listening to Livewire Radio. If you live in the Portland area, come to our December 4th show at the Alberta Rose Theater. Guests include Todd Levin, writer for Conan O'Brien, and co-author of Our Bodies, Our Junk. (laughs) Stephen Elliott, founder of TheRumpus.net and author of The Adderall Diaries. Musical guests mimicking birds and Laura Veers and others. Visit our website at LiveWireRadio.org for tickets and more information. You're listening to Live Wire Radio, the radio variety show created by people who are constantly distracted by shiny mental objects just like you are. We'll be right back. Tiffany, go ahead and adjust your mirrors and fasten that seatbelt securely. With your foot on the brake, turn the key in the ignition and we'll begin. I'm just a little nervous, Mr. Thurman. That's natural. Driving is a big responsibility, but you'll do fine. Okay. Shifting to drive, left turn indicator on, checking mirrors, and pulling into the roadway. My hands are at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. Coffee time. What? A driver's ed lingo. 10 and 2 are the times most folks take a break for coffee, so... Coffee time, get it? I I don't drink coffee. Well, good for you, Tiffany. Now go straight for three blocks, and at the traffic signal, take a left. Okay. Whoa, whoa, your speed dropped a little bit there, Tiffany. What's going on? Sorry, Mr. Thurman, but you're singing or whatever Oh, was I singing? Sorry about that. Anyways, try and maintain at even speed. Check your mirrors often and don't forget about that blind spot. Right. Okay, you're weaving a bit there. What's going on? Well, I 
I can't concentrate. The noise is... Well, the road can be noisy. You have to be able to tune out the traffic noise. Yeah, a traffic noise I can handle, but... Coffee uh, time! Again? What? Uh, ten and two, please. Your hands were at oh. eight and three. Okay. Uh, that's not coffee time. Let's take a swig out of the bottle in my drawer time. <laughs> Mr. Thurman! Oh, I'm mostly joking, Tiffany. All right, we're coming up on the light, so you'll want to be in the left lane. All right. Okay, it's a red light, so let's use this time to recheck your mirrors and troubleshoot the road ahead. Okay. Can we just do it quietly, please? Well, by all means. Okay. Dude! That's gross! What? What's the matter? The finger up your nose is the matter. Nasty! Uh, I apologize. What is your deal, Mr. Thurman? Tiffany, I'm gonna level with you. I suffer from something called pseudo-solo vehicular occupancy syndrome, or PSVOS, or sometimes PISVOS. Otherwise known uh, as... Okay, okay. Well, what is it? Well, I behave as if I'm riding alone in an automobile, even when I'm not. <laughs> so I might sing freely without fear of judgment or make funny noises and, I'm ashamed to say, pick my nose. Oh. You know, Tiffany, all the things we do in the car when we're alone. Actually, I don't know. I'm 15. I've never been alone in a car. That's probably just as well. Now, I'm, I'm sorry my syndrome is a bummer, but you and I have a job to do today. Your job is to learn to be a safe and lawful driver, and my job is to teach you. My record reflects that I do a darn fine job of it, so, you know, despite my affliction... Okay, fine. Jeez. Sorry. Now, you have the green arrow. Turn left and proceed one block and turn right on 27th. Right on 27th. Okay. Burrito loco! Huh? Burrito loco! Burrito loco! Dude! What? You're saying burrito loco for no reason. You know, that doesn't surprise me. I've, I often read the signs I see out loud. It's, it's the syndrome. Yeah, well, it's weird. Oh, is it, Tiffany? Is it also weird to be odor-blind or left-footed or to be unable to taste wasabi? Kinda. <sighs> Turn right here and just stay in the right lane. Burrito Loco! Cash Express. Kitten McSketchy's lingerie modeling. Oh, you're making it really hard for me to practice tolerance and valuing people's differences. You know, Tiffany, my syndrome wouldn't really be that noticeable if you didn't keep pointing it out. Coffee time! Nope. No way. Look, I have a death grip on this wheel at 10 and 2 o'clock exactly. Oh, <laughs> no, I was reading the sign on that espresso hut. Coffee time. Good lattes. Is this a test or a mind game or something? I mean, is this syndrome even a real thing? It's real. Real enough to qualify for medical marijuana. Uh, how would that help? Well, it makes it so I can't get it together to drive anywhere, uh, alone or otherwise. It's okay. It wore off like 20 minutes ago. I have to pull over. You're freaking me out. And I don't think it's safe to drive all freaked out. Sure. Take all the time you need. Hey, uh, what's happening, mamacita? Hey, hey, baby. You looking for a date? Maybe. You working? Maybe. You a cop? Oh. No, are you a cop? No. It's my... Oh, whoopsie. Uh, sorry, Tiffany. I... <laughs> I can explain that. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm driving alone... You are I... not alone! But you will be in a second because I am driving to a safe, well-lit place and getting out of this car because you are weird and inappropriate and you're the worst driving instructor in the world. Whoa. That is where you're wrong, Missy. I am the finest driving instructor you will ever meet. Graduates of my course are the best drivers on the road. Their focus is superhuman. Their concentration is laser sharp. And it's due in no small part to my pseudo-solo vehicular occupancy syndrome. You could be like them, Tiffany. Able to negotiate a crowded roundabout with the GPS unit droning and the baby crying and the other kids fighting and Hakuna Matata blasting on the DVD player. And if you're really good, someday... You can parallel park with the radio on. <laughs> if you can get over my idiosyncrasies and commit to being the best driver you can be, you will not fail this course, Tiffany, because I will not fail you. Because I know about the booze and the drugs and the hookers, right? That about sums it up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I get to play my tunes, and you're buying me some drive through Deal. How do you feel about Burrito Loco? Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who will be there for you this holiday season when you want to bring those dreams of dancing sugar plums to reality, or dancing pumpkin pies, or dancing spinach artichoke dip. Though why you're dreaming about that stuff might be something to discuss with your analyst. Anyways, thanks, Whole Foods.
We've shared this planet since the dawn of man. But as our world expands into theirs, more and more wild animals lose their families. And their very existence on Earth is in danger. you just heard was part of the trailer for Born to be Wild, an upcoming documentary about our next guest's quest to save the endangered orangutan. Dr. Birute Mary Galdakas is the world's foremost authority on orangutans and was chosen by Dr. Louis Leakey himself to study them in 1971. Since then, she helped establish Tanjung Pudding, a million-acre national park on the south coast of the world's third largest tropical rainforest in Borneo. This is where she's conducted the longest continuous study by one investigator of any wild animal in the world. Please welcome Dr. Birite Mary Galdakas to Livewire. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. That was actually, uh, that the Born to be Wild is an IMAX 3D documentary, and um, it's, it was narrated by Morgan Freeman, who I think narrates everything now. <laughs> That's right, including the voice of God. Yes, exactly. He's the voice of God. I know that you have a foundation to save these orangutans, and that's one of the focuses of this documentary. Can you talk about what we'll see in it? Well, actually, what you'll see is the work that uh, our foundation, which is Orangutan Foundation International, uh, supports and has been supporting for several decades, and that is the rehabilitation of wild-born ex-captive orangutans. And it's not meant to be a comedy. It's meant to be very serious. But, you know, orangutans just are amazing creatures who don't take themselves seriously. The movie is, the documentary is actually amazing. It's funny. It brings bring a smile or even a chuckle. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely beautiful. If you get a chance, just go on YouTube and, act, and you can find the the trailer for it, and it's, act- it's stunning. I wanted to talk a little bit about, you were talking about all of these aspects of orangutans who, that sound, it sounds very human. Genetically, they're the furthest from us. That's right. But it sounds to me like they're the closest to us in, in the way that they, in, in their behavior. Well, you know, chimpanzees share 99% of their genetic material with us. There are actually people who have received uh, blood transfusions from chimpanzees, and you can do that once... Um, once the blood groups are, are matched. Orangutans share about 97% of their genetic material with us, and they are human enough that they resemble us, but they're distant enough that they are, in some ways, very, very different. So one of the ways in which they're different, which has just come out in the last few months, is among all large mammals they use virtually no energy. So an orangutan moving through the canopy uses less energy than a person sitting in a chair, watch, in an easy chair, watching TV. And How does that work physically? Well, well, I'm not a physiologist, but there's something about their metabolism, something about their physiology, and something about their behavior. I mean, an orangutan won't do anything unless he or she wants to do it, and he or she really wants to do it badly. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't just come for treats, for instance. Right. Yeah. So it's this kind of conservation of energy that makes them very contemplative and meditative. And they're very benign. They are not aggressive. The only time that you really have to fear an orangutan's wrath or anger is when an adult male comes close to another adult male in the presence of a receptive female. So they kind of basically sit in the forest, eat relatively little, but when it really counts, then they get very, very serious. (laughs) And I did read a passage. Uh, You talk in in your book about how you have gotten emotionally involved with these orangutans. And I know that some scientists actually believe that that's 
kind of foreboden. But what do you believe that you've learned about them that you couldn't have learned had you not become emotionally involved with them? Well, I think I've learned very simple things. But, you know, sometimes the simplest things are the most profound, are the most profound truths. And what I have learned is that I'm a human being and that human beings are basically very different from orangutans in that we humans very badly need each other. I mean, orangutans are like like God. They absolutely do not need anybody else. They're totally self-sufficient. They are universes in themselves. They are the only higher primate that is, or the only great ape, that is solitary or semi-solitary in the wild. So when you see an adult male in a zoo and he's all by himself, you know, people say, poor, poor creature, poor creature. Well, if he was a chimpanzee, yes, that would be torture. That would be abuse, keeping him by himself. But an orangutan has a self-sufficiency. Human beings don't have that self-sufficiency. Without kin, without friendship, we are lost. We are doomed. You know, and this, is, this seems to be like a very simple truth, but it's actually extremely profound and goes back to how we evolved as a species. We need each other. And, of course, there's all kinds of data that show, you know, that older people who are socially isolated are the ones who most readily get heart attacks. You know, and it might seem like a very simple truth, but it's so profound when you take it to the depths of its meaning. How do you, having been around them for so long, do you, in a way, feel like part of their family? I mean, do you feel like in some way you've become attached in ways that they can't become attached? That's a very hard question to answer. Um, but I think for orangutans, friendship is a very rare commodity. But because it is rare, when they do get attached, they really do get attached. And they're kind of like, I, I want to say, like pri- they have primary relationships. And, you know, I had a friend who studied chimpanzees, and she said that these were captive chimpanzees, that every day... You know, she'd go to those captive chimpanzees, and the first question that they asked was, who is dominant today? Well, with orangutans, you can have a friendship with an orangutan that spans decades, and they never ask that question once you become friends with them. It no longer matters who is dominant and who isn't. So I I have very deep friendships with with orangutans, and I think I've worked with them now 40 years. And in some ways, I think a piece of orangutan has entered my soul you know, <laughs> well, they're beautiful creatures. I think it would be difficult not not to have that happen. Well, they're very benign. They're very benevolent, and the serenity that I I speak of, you know, is into the core of their souls. It may have rubbed off on you. Hopefully, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. And I, I, you probably get get asked this question a lot, but it, I, I find it really interesting that Lewis Leakey chose. You are one of. They call you Leaky's Angels. Um, it's Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and you are all uh, all studied with Louis Leakey, and he, uh, each one of you, worked with him. Um, and and some people t- talk about the ways in which that you decided to study them, and that was that you sort of allowed them allowed the subjects to have control. And people have written in the past about how that a man would, would probably be less likely to do that. And you've, you, uh, Diane Fossey, and you and, and Jane Goodall have all been extremely successful in this research. So do you feel that your gender in some way has made you better at this work? Well, as a Western person, uh, there, is, there are data that indicate that women, Western women, are more perceptive in some ways, than Western men. Now, I don't know if this is... I haven't always found this to be the case. My first husband, Rod Brindamore, was extremely perceptive, and actually quite macho, too. But I think women's concerns in society, certainly 40 years ago, were not about career, were not about advancement in academia. So when Jane Goodall went out to study chimpanzees 50 years ago, and she's celebrating 50 years of the chimpanzees this year... She had no ambitions to get a PhD, you know, become a full professor or a dean or anything like that. And I think 40 years ago, uh, that was the case, that for the women who went out to study primates, it was about the primates. It wasn't about themselves. So I think that's why Louis Leakey 
Dr. Barute Mary Galdikas, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and you'll never have to click that annoying download button again. Congratulations, you've just saved almost 30 seconds over the course of a lifetime of Livewires. Now, grab a beer and use that time to re- Oh, it's over. <laughs> Get more information at livewireradio.org. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Blue Cranes.
Ukraine. Now, please welcome back to the stage the man who's been toiling away for the past hour, Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I've learned tonight that I want to be an orangutan. Orangutans have an advantage over their homo sapien friends in that they can do most things humans can do physically, but they can do them upside down while swinging from a chandelier with almost no energy output. (laughs) I could play guitar upside down, trombone, violin, harp, Jews harp, piano, glockenspiel. Well, then it would be spielenglock, but you get the idea of my utter autonomy. As an orangutan swinging from a chandelier, I think I would want to play not one, but two saxophones. It would sound like the blue cranes, the swinging back and forth, the playing of the sax, the bass of the three kids jumping on the bed upstairs. Uncle Enos would jump up and yell, Stop that jumping! We're trying to eat, damn it! Whatever, Uncle Penis! What? I heard that! And plaster is filtering into the red clay of the cranberry sauce like little snowflakes. After three scotches with Uncle Bob, it's almost magical. And you imagine yourself walking down a country lane on the day of the first snow. Globes of your breath form in the air. They bring white leaves back to the distant oaks for a second. Meanwhile, everyone's trying to eat turkey and talk about Uncle Herbert's hernia, which, let's face it, is inappropriate. But it doesn't matter because I'm an orangutan. It's cute. It's adorable. It's educational. Plus, you don't even have to wear pants. (laughs) Don't deny it. Many of you secretly desire not to wear pants at Thanksgiving. Especially after your third helping of green bean casserole. Or what you thought was green bean casserole. Is that a Lego? (laughs) It's kind of zen, don't you think, not to wear pants at Thanksgiving kind of Nepalese. It's kind of a revolution. (laughs) I think we had it right when we were orangutans, and perhaps the advanced brain is nice, but perhaps we had the best mojo when we were orangutans. Think about just hanging out in the jungle, checking out a snake, just holding it up, watching it twist about your arm, wondering how you're ever going to invent tools if your sticks keep doing crap like this. And perhaps this was a preview for the Garden of Eden. Maybe we evolved. Then came the Garden of Eden. That part probably just got edited out of the Bible along the way. If only the editor had known that would later become kind of a problem. Oh, well. Past potatoes, I say. They have orangutan spin in them, Uncle Scott. Who cares? It's all in the family. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for coming out. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Jeff Greenwald, Barute Galdikas, and Blue Cranes. The Mutton Shops were Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Leica, Fitch and Associates, the Falcon Art Community, and Willamette Week. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you, fine people. Livewire is created and produced by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brumberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Jonathan Newsom. House sound, Jeff Simmons. The faces for radio theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, performer Trisha Ferguson, and siren of sound, Pat Janowski. Our guest writers this month were Timmy Williams and Derek Brown. 
Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. Production management by Drew Flynn. Stage management by Stephen Alexander. Theme by Courtney Montrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Whole Foods Market. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is Tyler Hughes, and whew, that was a heavy credit load. I now have enough credits for a master's in blah, blah, blah from the University of Enough Already. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 